0: It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Since the last time I was with you, Dr. Fauci said the pandemic phase of the pandemic was over. And then it was back on. We at the Adult in the Room podcast will continue living our lives as normal. Okay, so on the show today, I discuss a huge First Amendment case about religious liberty in governmental settings, namely schools, with First Liberty Institute's Jeremy Rice about the Coach Joe Kennedy case out of Washington State, and how this could be a very huge, a sea change huge in First Amendment jurisprudence, but unless you're a First Amendment wonk, probably not for the reason you think. Okay, so I'll include some of the Supreme Court arguments following that interview for your listening pleasure. Well, it is for me anyway, and I put it at the end, so, you know, do with it what you will. Uh, So that's coming up. Also, Antifa in Portland Drops paint, eggs, and projectiles on truckers from a freeway overpass. And guess who was part of that attempted murder? Yes. In fact, they did it to all different kinds of vehicles, not just the trucks. Uh, Our guest uh, from a few weeks back, Antifa John, was there dropping stuff reportedly on truckers and other vehicles on a Portland freeway. Whew antifa john you told me you were so innocent okay john hacker that's his identification at least that's what andy knows says tell you more in a minute seattle now has a protection racket going on i'm laughing it's not funny i mean it's funny not funny Oh, it's terrible, actually. It's just such a disintegration of, you know, quality of life in that downtown core. It is amazing. Uh, Let's see. Department of Homeland Security has its own truth squad. Tell you about that. And Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. uh, See how that's going, how people are still reacting to it. Not too much, but uh, how he's had to sell a lot of Tesla stock to get that done. Okay, so first up, the CDC poobahs. Now tell us that fully 57% of the American populace has had COVID because they have detectable levels of antibodies from prior infections. So if you add that to all the people who are forced to have the shot or lose their jobs and good standing in public or those who voluntarily got the shot, I mean, we should be, what, at herd immunity at this point. I mean, if they I mean, look, if they didn't keep redefining what herd immunity is, which uh, the good doctor's been doing since the beginning of the pandemic. Anyway, so uh, Tony Fauci's admitted he changed the herd immunity numbers throughout the infection to encourage getting the shot. So uh, we'll likely never reach herd immunity. Let's just be honest, because they'll never say that because they want to keep the grift going. And by that, I mean all kinds of things uh, are an offshoot of the pandemic. So this pandemic... I predict, will not be over until the 2024 election. Now, I used to think it would be done after the 2022 midterms, but after what the Biden administration did this week, an outrage, I think the left is capable of anything. And so even using people's health against them. Now, how do I know that there's you know, some politics involved in the pandemic response? Well, Observation, and I've gone to com and downloaded all the information, which is a, probably a real website, but it's just one of my go-tos for stating that it's so obvious, and if you don't get it, you're not paying attention. And you might want to just not vote next time. <laughs> please, please. But I know because the General Accounting Office investigation just released— yeah, they did an investigation. Shock. And they concluded that the Health and Human Services Department, which includes the CDC, National Institutes of Health, the FDA and something that that is called ASPR, which stands for the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response and others involved in pandemic response and oversight, changed their so-called sciencey positions to accommodate their political friends. Now, there's a lot to this, so I'll just give you the highlights. The study title is HHS Agencies Need to Develop Procedures on Training Staff on Reporting and Addressing Political Interference. And one of the anodyne findings uh, is this. Here's a quote. Through semi-structured interviews and a confidential hotline, employees at CDC, FDA, and NIH told GAO... Wow. Hello? Uh, they observed incidents that they perceived to be political interference but did not pre- report them for various region- reasons, including fear of retaliation, being unsure how to report issues, believing agency leaders were already aware of it, etc. Now, what were the years the study oh, looked, looked at? Well, they looked at 2010 to 2021. Now, who's president for most of that time? That's right, Barack Obama. Barack Obama had major pandemics and outbreaks happen on his watch, including H1N1, swine flu. Uh, he imported uh, Ebola patients to the country, Zika, and uh, he is never mentioned. The man who is now insinuating himself into the need for censorship of public speech is a guy who, oh, he's never mentioned. But guess who is? Donald Trump, who's probably the most transparent president we've ever had. But he, he And he was overtly political. I mean, in terms of, we got to get this done. We, we got to get this vaccine. Hurry up. Let's invoke the uh, law that uh, forces companies to make stuff for us. Uh, let's do, you know, any number of things. So he was out there saying it. And so they felt very, very intimidated. But I knew that this would be a Trump era thing. I just knew it. So trust me, they'll never do a follow up. Oh, Biden's name never comes up. No, absolutely not. Mr. Mis- and Disinformation, uh cop. Not even. It doesn't even come up. It's uh, They'll never do a follow up of this. They'll They'll never do it. And they should, really, because if you want to find political influence on the pandemic, you need only look at the overt colluding between the White House, Silicon Valley and the social media companies. Many times at the overt request of the Biden White House, White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki said so.
1: Uh, within the Surgeon General's office, we're flagging problematic posts for Facebook uh, that spread disinformation. We're working with doctors and medical professionals to connect uh, to connected medical experts with popular with popular who are popular with their audiences with uh, with accurate information and boost trusted content.
0: What's dis or misinformation? Anything that's not convenient to them. This is not normal This is not an, oh, they all do it sort of thing. That's intellectually lazy. It's untrue. It's objectively untrue. This is an anomaly, and it's a sick one. To be clear, not normal. This is an information war conducted on the American people. It's Worse than that which is attributed to Russia during the 2016 election, even if you leave out Hillary Clinton's work with the Russians to make up stuff about Donald Trump. (laughs) Uh, uh, P.S. If you're not following the Durham investigation, don't worry, we're on it. I'll be covering that in our next episode, and I'll interview Julie Kelly about her new book about the January 6th riot and protest. Okay, so now how was I alerted to this GAO report? considering that it hasn't exactly made a huge splash in the media. I heard it from Dr. Robert Malone, who helped create the mRNA technology, and I learned it from his Substack writings, not on social media, his Substack writings, because Dr. M- uh, Robert Malone, was, uh, he was bullied from polite society because he's been right about the pandemic from the gate. Maybe he's had a few missteps here and there, but I mean, he's been right. He was removed from Twitter for quote misinformation, as adjudged by the ones and zeros in content moderation at Facebook, Twitter, etc. In Silicon Valley, at uh, oh wait, at the behest of people like Jen Psaki, whom you just heard admit it. It's astonishing. And all I can say is Elon Musk is not a savior, but I'm grateful to him for buying Twitter. But the censorship situation gets worse because the Department of Homeland Security has, as you may have heard, set up a misinformation, disinformation panel to take control of messages about Russia and Ukraine and the pandemic. And they're growing their portfolio as we speak in fact they announced it earlier in the week and then by the end of the week they were going to cover more things because you know they know best what truth is objective truth is sure and he put it in charge of it this truth squad an msnbc frequent guest and cabaret singer (laughs) she's very good you can tell she she came up in high school and college and did she did theater she was a theater geek okay great fine whatever and um but um that's not that's really actually not the worst of it. The worst of it are her credentials, because not only she's supposed an expert in disinformation and misinformation, she's written a couple of books on it. And I'm pretty sure she was paid to do those, which is not from the publisher, from somebody else who wants her to disseminate the information. Uh, she is so good, we understand, at discerning Miss and disinformation that she not only believed, but pushed the Hillary Clinton paid for Trump, Russia, disinformation, political operation. See my note on John Durham. Uh, that she paid for all of it. The Russia, Trump, Russia, 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 disinformation, political operation. And not only that, she bought that hook, line and sinker. Right. She also said that the true story about Hunter Biden's laptop and all the damning things about paying off dad, you know, then vice president, now the president, with his foreign deals was fake. Oh, yeah. So she's totally qualified. (laughs) Here is uh, Congressman Jim Jordan questioning. Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, on this very thing. Uh,
2: Mr. Secretary, who's Nina Jenkiewicz? Um, She is the newly appointed um, individual in our
3: Office of Policy. In the okay. Department of Homeland Security, and is she the new executive, executive director of the disinforma- Is she the new executive director for Disinformation Governance uh, Board? She is the executive director of the Disinformation Governance. Board. And
4: this is—is is this the same individual who said the dossier was
2: real and the Hunter Biden laptop story was false? Is that the individual who's now running the Disinformation Governance Board? Uh, I'm not familiar with those statements. It's been reported widely.
0: Uh, I I don't know, I'm just the DHS secretary and I'm oversight of the uh, information, disinformation, misinformation board, and I have no idea. Wow. So you know the fix is in. I mean, this is all political. And you know why it's happening. Because if Musk, Elon Musk, liberates content on Twitter, the most powerful social media platform for politicos... They still have veto power over it if they've got their little misinformation, disinformation uh, collaboration. And if the Republicans have a red wave in the midterms leading to a general election wipeout in the 2024 election or not, the Democrats at DHS still have control over the message and will go to. In fact, as a matter of fact, they're trying to import the trusted news source uh, program that is underway in Europe and the UK, no, not in Europe, but in, in the European Union, and they want to uh, they they want to bring that to. The United States, how are they going to do that? Well, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton both spoke in the last few days about how they just think this is the greatest idea in the world. Hey, let's just do what the European Union's doing, which gives government veto power over speech. That's not how we roll in the United States of America, notwithstanding all of the stuff going on recently but that's really a fundamentally not what we do it's not how we roll so but the thing is is that if they can impose on Elon Musk and Twitter the requirements of the European Union um and they can what they'll do is they'll say well we just might as well import their rules here to the United States of America so Elon Musk why don't you do that in America because you're going to have to do it in the European Union anyway that's that's the end game, folks. That's it. Hey, Elon, we know you're a man of, you know, you're a businessman, and we know you've got to trim your sales to hue to, uh, to mix my metaphors, to um, the standards of other countries, which he's already said he has to do. So in that big TED Talk thing, maybe I'll take that apart for another future podcast, but uh, when I wrote in uh, PJ Media Elon Musk is not your savior. I give you quotes, uh, what he says, and he has to ad- adhere to laws of different countries. So that means nothing's going to change in China. That you know, they, Jack Dorsey's already trimmed his sails and cut free speech off Hollywood. Who knows what's going to happen? But nevertheless, on the issue of Twitter, he says he's going to have to do that anyway. So, so you know. But the Democrats, if this goes through, I mean, if the Miss and disinformation panel is allowed to have a budget and do its thing and stifle speech. It is the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life in America, ever, and my whole life's been in America, and that's a long life, uh, praise God. So if you don't have a voice, folks, you don't have a life. If you don't have a voice, you don't have a spirit. These people, in this administration, the farthest left administration I've that has ever been in the United States of America, and that's saying something. Uh, looking at you, Woodrow Wilson and Barack Obama. I mean, they are like Dementors in Harry Potter. You know, they send their black, cold air; everything darkens. That deprives you of all joy. You can't speak. You can't emote nothing except sheer terror and then they suck the life out of you at the left's tip of the spear to act as punishers for those people whose message they don't like again is antifa Uh, you know they have the entire panoply of political offices at the in government and they've got those guys doing their bidding but on street to intimidate joe normal antifa so on friday they positioned five members of antifa but that's really pretty much all it took positioned themselves over a freeway overpass in oregon in the portland area to drop eggs projectiles and paint on a convoy of truckers in oregon but they didn't just hit truckers, they hit normal, every, everyday drivers. Um, in short, this is attempted, attempted murder. People who do that who don't understand physics, which apparently are, you know, the so-called certified smart guys in Antifa, don't uh, you know, irrespective, they're they're sending them off irrespective of what happens. It is illegal. And I hope they throw the book at these bastards. So, anyway, Andy No posted video from Truckers. And he notes that one of the members of Antifa was none other than who was there dropping stuff. Andy reports was John Hacker. You know John Hacker, longtime listeners of the Adult in the Room podcast. You know John Hacker. He is the guy who is known as an R Circle antifa john whom i interviewed a few weeks back on the podcast so go listen to there we've got it well identified here's what it sounded like on the portland freeway on friday afternoon one when antifa attacked peaceful truckers that's all they were doing was driving and they essentially shut down one side of the freeway because that they were people were frightened that they would die from their projectiles duh and
2: they're throwing shit off that overpass. Where's this overpass at? The next one you come to. the next one you come through, is 22. You got four or five kids up there with masks on. The people with masks on, they're throwing shit at you. Heads up. Look like it what it was,
5: but still keep an eye out. Heads up. the county on the right. <laughs>
0: Six members of Antifa.
2: Yeah, it's paint-filled eggs,
0: paint-filled Now the traffic is stopping. There's an Xfinity truck driver there.
5: Watch what happens here.
0: Flag-drape trucks cars there's a van what's this and there's a water cannon somebody brought a water cannon like a an old fire truck it's not an active fire truck I think the water cannon misses it goes on okay so i'm gonna dip out okay so hacker says they were shot at by truckers absolutely no proof of that i see a guy pull a gun but it's a pistol there's no way he's gonna make that i mean i mean self-defense it is but um, anyway, so uh, police officers show up fairly quickly at some point during this contre so, So uh, despite closing half of the freeway on Friday afternoon and trying to kill people, um, no, word, no word yet on any arrests. So one thing, however, she tried to say, one thing is sure. They plotted the whole thing on Twitter, as Antifa so often does. Sure, everybody's got their private Telegram messaging and all that stuff going on, and the on the other side with their. Uh, You know, we heard about it from uh, our friend a couple of weeks back in the episode who is suing the city of Portland for failure to protect them. And they had an intentional hands off policy about it. And she was telling us about how all the messaging works with uh, these internal organizations on the right. So, you know, and, you know, that's that's what they're doing on the left. So they plotted it on Twitter. However, you can see it. I have proof. And they're still on Twitter. Speaking of letting the thugs have veto power over speech, yes, driving your truck peacefully is, and moving freely about the country is a First Amendment activity. In downtown Seattle, there are so few cops to respond to help people that a business owner in Belltown, one of the more interesting areas, shall we say, who runs a doggy daycare... Believes that he's back in Gotham. He's in an episode of The Wire. He's been broken into four times. His front window smashed. He's only been there since January. Hello. His cameras have been stolen. You know that's a market tell. Okay, I'm just saying. <laughs> a doggy day- daycare in this um, place that is riven with drug dealers, homeless. uh, People of ill repute of all kinds and hot and cold running bums and drug dealers, it turns out. So anyway, the local drug dealers approached the man who runs the doggy daycare with an offer he can't refuse. This report is from Cairo 7 News, and it was not, believe it or not, the sole subject of the piece.
3: When someone smashed a window at Club Dogfish Sunday night, it was the fourth time someone has broken into this dog-sitting business since it opened January 28th. The surveillance video shows Seattle police arriving 17 minutes later.
4: This was the first time in the four break-ins that I actually spoke to a police officer. So...
1: What did they tell you?
4: They told me to install new cameras. Um, My security cameras were stolen on the third
3: break in, so I didn't have cameras this time. What owner Josh Center has done instead is enlist the help of the drug dealers and others, he says, who hang out outside his business in the heart of Belltown.
4: I feel like we're returning to the era of protection money because, um, In exchange for me turning my eye when I have drug dealers at my door or um, down the block, they keep people from hanging out in front of my building.
3: Indeed, he says they were the ones who told him about Sunday's break-in.
0: The newly elected city attorney who was just hired, I don't know, just a few months back, and it was a huge news because, of course, she's a Republican. And people are sick and tired of people not – these people in public power over law enforcement not enforcing said law. But what she did was she had to – she believes that she had to blow off 2,000 cases stemming from 2020, all property crimes, not crimes against persons. But uh, And so she could get straight. A lot of the statute of limitations had been blown and and, uh, so – She's between a rock and a hard spot. They had She was handed a 5,000 case backlog when she arrived in the office. So she's blowing off 2,000 of them, pursuing 3,000 of them, and then trying to get straight on the others. You know, just a right time. At, you know, Wrong answer, obviously. Who wants that? But uh, Ann Davison said it's pretty much the only way we can get a handle on this and move forward and start going after these property crimes and quality of life crimes because guess what when you have quality you know it's literally the broken windows theory literally you've got these guys standing out they're going they're watching somebody break into this guy's business I'm like ooh, i better you know did they stop him no they're not the cops they're the drug dealers but hey they probably even know the guy did it like you ain't doing nothing you ain't seeing nothing because you're busy doing something nevertheless uh you know if you turn an eye blind eye to the drug dealers and don't call the cops we'll we'll protect your business now i'm sorry but that that is not the way the western civilization works oh yeah sure i know only in dysfunctional dystopian places does it work like that which apparently seattle has fallen into it's astonishing. Anyway, the cops, they've got more cops leaving than they have coming. They are in a world of hurt. And it's all its all silencing people. What did the drug dealers do to that guy? They silenced him. Police can't do much. I hope they go after whoever it was, but how are they going to know? The drug dealers watched it. But are they going to drop dime on that guy or guys who did that? No. And the cameras? The cameras were stolen in the third smashed window incident. I mean, if you... Listen, buddy, I'm telling you right now, it's a market tell. Get out. Huh. Well, we've been talking about nothing but essentially free speech. This entire Adult in the Room podcast so far. It gets even more interesting with the case of Coach Joe Kennedy versus the Bremerton, Washington School District. Now, I talked with Jeremy Rice from First Liberty Institute, one of his attorneys, about the case and it going to, yes, the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, you will hear some of the arguments from that court case coming up after our interview if you want to listen, but enjoy. (music) For six years, he's been sidelined because he was fired for praying by himself at midfield after football games to thank God for the safety of his players. And Coach Kennedy, Coach Joe Kennedy, has been fighting for his First Amendment rights ever since. And his case just went to the U.S. Supreme Court a few days ago. Jeremy Rice is with First Liberty Institute. He was one of the key attorneys in the First Amendment case of Coach Joe Kennedy versus his former employer, uh, Bremerton, Washington School District, where Kennedy was an assistant coach at the high school. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for being willing to come back on. I appreciate it. We were able to speak earlier this week on KTTH Radio, and I appreciate your willingness to explain things again for the audience of the Adult in the Room podcast. So uh, I know that's kind of Double duty. Appreciate it.
6: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, so we get before we get to the X's and O's of this particular particular legal showdown. Um, to mix metaphors, uh, how do you think that things went in the Supreme Court oral arguments on April twenty fifth?
6: Yeah, I think they went as well as they could be expected to have gone. And really, Coach Kennedy had the, the opportunity through his attorneys this time to to fully present the facts of the case, and and I think the justices understood the facts as they really happen, not as the school district's attorney's wishes that they would have been and so uh, i think we're going to see come the end of june is a decision that will uh, protect coach kennedy and just how much beyond that is uh, something that we're going to have to wait for june to find out
0: during the oral arguments it was clear that there were some you know uh, stories with the defense if you will the had one uh, claim of what happened, and then the uh, plaintiff's attorneys had the other, or I think I have vice versa. So, you're the uh, Bremerton School District, I suppose, is the defendant in this case. So, my, my question is how does a case that has so many different issues and not even a, a, an agreement on what the facts are make it to the U.S. Supreme Court? How does that happen?
6: Yeah, well, it. it I, I wish I knew, because the the facts as we presented them are the facts as they really happened. But unfortunately, the Ninth Circuit uh, adopted a series of facts that just simply weren't the case. Oh, uh,
0: wait, it's the Ninth Circuit's fault. Well, that makes sense.
6: <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of uh, crazy that it always comes down to the, the Ninth Circuit here. But in this situation, uh-huh. look. Uh, Not only did they uh, address the facts that just simply weren't true. I mean, Coach Kennedy stopped. uh, They were very concerned about the coach praying with students. And and I guess so were we. We wouldn't have taken that case if that were the case. Uh, But that wasn't what happened. In in this situation, when Coach was asked to stop praying with the students, yeah, it it, it had happened before, but as soon as he was asked to stop, he did. And he's never done that since then. And, And so the thing that he was actually disciplined for, the thing he was suspended and then later fired for, was uh, for engaging in a, a a moment of private prayer by himself at the fifty yard line following the football games that he coached uh, and, and really there 's no amount of of a recasting of those facts that the school 's uh, appellate attorneys can do to hide that fact when we 've got contemporaneous statements from the uh, school district, for instance, the, the superintendent of the schools right before he suspended the coach wrote an email to the head director of schools in the state of Washington and said, this has shifted from a case about a coach's coach praying with student athletes to a coach's right to pray at the 50 yard line. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue about uh, whether or not this, uh, what he was doing when seven days before he suspended him, he's saying, uh, yeah, this coach is trying to pray by himself. That's what the issue actually is. And so I I think the justices fully now understand that's precisely what happened coach was uh, suspended for praying by himself on a knee after a football game on the 50-yard line.
0: Is that just an effort to try to excise from your case the less popular aspects of it? Or, I mean, because now we're at the 50-yard line and we're doing this by himself, but um, do the other prayers at all with players come into play
6: here? Yeah, look, there's an old saying in the law that says, if your case is strong in the law, pound the law. If it's strong in the facts, pound the facts. If it's strong on neither, then you got to pound the table. And, and I think what's happening here is that the, the attorneys that the school district hired for their appeal, uh, they're just simply pounding the table. They, they know that they lose on the law because the law is very clear, that that uh, teachers do not have to shed their constitutional rights when they walk through the schoolhouse gates. They know that the facts are against them because Coach was praying by himself. He was clearly a private citizen engaged in that simple act of, of, of what the school district later called demonstrative religious activity. Uh, And so they had no leg left to stand on. And so they're just left before the court pounding the table. And I think that's going to ultimately result in them losing the case.
0: There was an issue also over the test of uh, free speech that is used in these cases, which was as confusing as all get out, because even as a person who knows very, I mean, I I sort of follow the Supreme Court and I uh, subscribe to all their oral arguments and I listen to all the oral arguments. So you pick up a few things there. But even I knew the Lemon test was Uh, gone for the most part. How the heck did it end up in this case?
6: (laughs) You know, Justice Scalia years ago called the lemon test a ghoul that walks about at midnight only to be slaughtered and to raise its ugly specter once again or something like that. Uh, And it keeps coming around. Look, three years ago, we thought we had more or less put the final nail in the coffin of of the lemon test in the American Legion case that we argued before the Supreme Court as well. Uh, And for uh, longstanding uh, monuments and other traditions in the public square involving kind of religion in civic life, that has been resolved. And that no longer is the test that is applied by the Supreme Court. And and we thought maybe, you know, 30 years from now, we might have another case that would uh, bring that decision into the school districts, um, uh, the, the schools around the country. But it sounds like the justices are very interested in making that happen right now. And and that really is kind of exciting for us because, uh, you know, you and I have not known in our lifetime a universe without the lemon test and the amount of harm that has done for uh, the the free exercise of religion in the public square, including on our school campuses here. Uh, So my hope is by the end of June, we get a decision that says not only is Coach Kennedy able to be a coach again and pray at the 50 yard line by himself after the games, But that uh, no teacher is going to be afraid and need to be afraid of, you know, bowing their head just a moment too long when that uh, quarterback is writhing in pain on an injury. or. Uh, saying grace over their lunch in the student cafeteria that can be seen by by others, or you know, saying God bless you to a student who sneezes in the hallway. I, those are all things that are now protected and should be protected by the First Amendment.
0: And because of this Lemon test, everything has just been up in the air for so long, and or or it's been confusing for school administrators who think that any display of any religious belief uh, in any manner is somehow illegal. Oh no! And is that why Paul Clement, your wonderful advocate, whom I've enjoyed listening to? You over these many, many years, uh, said, uh, no, it hasn't. It, they're, they're suggesting, in fact, they're arguing that this case is actually an establishment of a religion.
6: Yeah. Look, I, it's, it's our experience around the country that school district attorneys are, are very quick to stamp out any kind of religious uh, uh, speech on campus uh, of our public schools, whether that's from a student or, or a teacher or a coach. And it's almost like they see religion as a sort of virus that could send that entire school district into lockdown, lest we have some sort of pandemic that spreads throughout the entire world. Uh, And and my hope is, yeah, my hope is that uh, this case really resolves that concern and and just removes it. Because, uh, you know, the promise of Tinker v. Des Moines in 1969 was that, uh, students and teachers do not have to shed their constitutional rights when they walk through the schoolhouse gates. Under, under the, the school district's uh, reasoning here and what the Ninth Circuit said is that they do, in fact, have to shed their constitutional rights. But that's not the America that you and I, I think, know, nor is it the America that Coach Kennedy fought in the Marine Corps for 20 years to protect.
0: Can you envision some scenarios in the future should the lemon test be tossed out for good and be stamped out like a poltergeist? um, What might happen in the schools now? I mean, you've given me some brief ones, but how big would this decision be for religious freedom?
6: Well, the immediate impact is for those coaches and teachers that are concerned about uh, uh, having some sort of religious display misinterpreted as an establishment of religion. Of course, the founding fathers would would be kind of rolling their eyes at this because right. <laughs> their their intention was that the establishment clause would prevent anybody from having to go to a state sponsored church. And that was kind of the end of it. But the way that it's been interpreted now, uh, you know, coach has been fired because he took a knee in private prayer by himself for 15 to 30 seconds. You know, I can envision a coach next season as a matter of fact that is standing on the sidelines in the last second of the game, and the team is lined up in their field goal uh, spread and formation. And this uh, freshman kicker is about to kick the game-winning field goal. Uh, and I could very easily see that, that kid or that uh, coach crossing himself, making the sign of the cross. Um, and, and sort of brave, breathing a sigh of relief that he's not going to be terminated. Or uh, this is something we see quite often: coaches that are near students after the game. They're maybe in a huddle, and they've got the post-game talk is all concluded, and the students break out spontaneously in a prayer circle. Which is this is very common in sports across mm-hmm, the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has to happen for those coaches? I mean, to this point, it's almost like they've got to run away with their fingers in their ears, saying, "I can't hear you," and unless they be uh, you know offending the Establishment Clause. All of that goes away under what we hope the decision will be when the lemon test is uh, f- put finally to rest and and teachers and coaches can stand respectfully at a distance while uh, the, the, the students engage themselves in prayer. Or, or, or even better yet, that they can actually show that they are people of faith on campus without having to worry about being terminated.
0: This case is almost quaint now in light of. What has happened in terms of free speech in this country, or the lack thereof? Uh, when you see stories abound, uh, such as this DHS Truth Squad, maybe you've been so busy involved in this case uh, you haven't heard that story. But wherein the uh, Department of Homeland Security will now uh, put forward a panel that will that will determine what is true and what is not in uh, you know migration issues as well as Russians that's uh, still in Russia uh, I mean how does anyone countenance that how does any American do that that's, that's <laughs> just absurd
6: you know we're getting to a stage of life where Orwell is almost jealous at the things that modern leftists are are conceiving in in the public square right now uh, look the, the, <laughs> the have founding, put
0: that in my book
6: <laughs> yeah the, the founding fathers were very clear that they wanted a public square in which everybody of a, a variety of backgrounds, uh, true diverse ideological backgrounds, religious backgrounds, all of them, that they would be able to be in the public square and have that really robust debate that that bears the fruit of of freedom, that, that allows truth to come to the top through that robust debate of, of ideas. Uh, and, and yet we've got uh, those that would seek to put their thumb on the scales of what speech is and is not allowed in polite conversation or in the public square. That has only given us, uh, brought us more damage. It has not done good things for us as a country. Uh, And and so my hope is that the justices provide some direction to the country to say, hey, do you remember this old thing we used to call the First Amendment, this free speech idea? Mm -hmm. It's still a really good thing. Let's allow that to go forward.
0: I mean, it's just astonishing to me that there's just a a wave of coverage and uh, action whose sole purpose is to drown out one side of the argument and how that's just, well, it's no problem. It's just astonishing to me. It's frightening. And you see who's lined up on one side and the rest of America's lined up on the other. I don't think that necessarily the rest of America is going to win this argument. And you see that, of course, in the Twitter debacle here in which people are so upset on the left because they will not be able to drown out the other side. What do you make of that?
6: Look, I'm not unaware that we're sitting here a couple months away from a midterm election (laughs) where most of America is going to be going to the polls and wondering, you know, what is my local official doing on this thing? What's my local congressman or mayor doing? And look, I I think in ninety nine or more percent of the country. Uh, Friday night, people are going to be at the football game and they're probably going to be at a prayer circle in the middle of the field or by themselves on the sidelines or up in the stands engaged in prayer. This is just what we do as a country. And, and most people, I think, in you know Wyoming or Indiana or elsewhere are going to be saying, yeah, look, guys, I don't understand what the big deal is here. This is just who we are. But there are a certain amount that are just absolutely strident in their their fervor about trying to stamp out religion from the public square. I, look, the school districts claim here that students could be, quote, coerced because yeah. if they can see the coach engaged in prayer. Think about what that means. They say that, look, as long as they can see this authority figure. I, and I played sports. I loved my coaches. I, I certainly wanted to please them, but I certainly had my own free will and didn't think that – they could coerce me into doing much of anything. They could punish me into doing a lot of things, and a certain number of sprints could certainly motivate me to do a lot better at certain things. But I wanted to prove myself based upon my own capacity, not based upon you know currying favor as as uh, uh, being coerced. on it. But if the standard is that you can be coerced by sight, that that, that says well, that's actually a very um, disappointing way to describe our students around our campus, around the country. But it's also not the law. Uh, it, it was shocking to me at the end of the decision, or I'm sorry, the end of the argument on Monday, where you had the other side actually saying that, you know, there is no state action required for a violation of the Establishment Clause. Meaning, if the, it, it's not enough that a coach could be fired for taking a knee in silent prayer at the football game. That's state action over there. But what happens if that same coach is known as an authority figure, but outside of the school engages in religious activity? That, they say, would also be sufficient to be able to to violate the exception clause. That's just getting in the realm of the crazy at that point. Mm -hmm. The coaches wouldn't be able to go to uh, church. Uh, Teachers couldn't go to Bible study. Uh, You couldn't go to the Cracker Barrel and wear your Bremerton Knights uh, polo shirt and bow your head in prayer. Since there is a, uh, you know, since students are sitting at the other table, it's really quite bizarre.
0: That's not incredibly diabolical, and the fact that the school district argued such a position is just so way out there. It is astonishing. Although, you know, I, I, I so so what they're saying is that only people of faith would have these things uh, would 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 be precluded from engaging in free speech. But the people who actually coerce students in class, suggesting political things, suggesting gender uh, things, and all of these other ways in which teachers and administrators impact kids and coerce kids in many respects. I mean, what else to explain this social uh, pandemic that we have of this transgender stuff? I mean, you have... friend groups all becoming trans at the same time it's it's frightening now who's to blame for that and 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 apparently since that's not an organized religion that that can go but organized religious people nope sorry
6: yeah it's a new universe in which we live where religion has to be hidden from public view and that was again the school district's position here that uh, you know, they said that he, 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 uh, Coach Kennedy's fifteen to thirty second prayer would take him away from his job responsibilities. But as an accommodation, they offered to let him walk across <laughs> the field. They would let him go across the track, up two flights of stairs, across a practice field, into the main school building, down the hallway, and into the janitor's office. And and that'd be fine. You know, if I step that off, that's certainly more than fifteen to thirty seconds of time when he's not there. And not to mention that doesn't do anything for when you're on the away game. What do you got to do then? kick everybody off the bus and have your moment of silent prayer there. Look, the the constitution does not require that students shed their I'm sorry, that coaches shed their constitutional rights when they walk onto the football field. They remain American citizens. And, and certainly that should mean at the very minimum that uh, you know if you can make a phone call after the game while you're watching the kids get uh, you know pick up their gear and head towards the locker room, then you can take 15 seconds to take a knee in silent prayer by yourself after the game. That shouldn't surprise anybody.
0: It, well, you know, I think people just hate God. <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, I, I, I should hope they didn't, but maybe maybe I don't know what's going on. But look, the, at the end of the day... Uh, this coach was removed from his position because uh, he refused to go dark into the into the night and hide and send a message that prayer is wrong and something to be hidden from view. That seems to be the reigning notion by the secular left right now that um, neutrality means actually punishing and censoring religious perspectives. Mm-hmm. But that's not neutrality. That's actually hostility towards religion. Neutrality would mean that you welcome religious exercise alongside of non-religious exercise. Size in an equal manner.
0: Whatever happened to classical liberals? What happened to those people? Where are they?
6: They're somewhere in hiding. I don't I don't I've been having a hard time finding them because every time they come up and say something on Twitter, they get suspended or censored and their account is no longer able to be used. Uh, this is the society in which we live right now, that if you if you agree with the reigning uh, ideological orthodoxy, you're allowed to participate in the public square. If not, well, too bad.
0: Speaking of ideological orthodoxy, um, what, do you think, uh, what do you think of the future changes in the U.S. Supreme Court in the last couple of minutes that we have here? Will Ketanji Brown-Jackson be more Sonia Sotomayor or Stephen Breyer, both reliably left, but one is dumber than the other?
6: Well, we're certainly not getting a, anything more conservative on the Supreme Court right. out of uh, Judge content uh, G Brown-Jackson. Look, uh, uh, she's, she's had some troubling decisions in the past. Um, I, I'm worried about the schools that she's sat on the board of and, yeah. and how she seems to have contributed to a number of uh, the curriculum choices that I, I don't think are healthy for our, our modern r- uh, republic. Uh, But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think we're we're uh, we're 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 certainly not gaining anything more conservative. We're not uh, we're not losing a significant liberal vote either. It's just going to be kind of a one for one swap. So we'll have to see exactly how that works out uh, come next term.
0: Pushing out Stephen Breyer early. I heard Mitch McConnell might be making a big thing about this, but I haven't followed up on that. Do you know anything more about that? I don't. Okay. well. You know, it's on you. You better figure it out because you're the guy next who's going to go in front of the Supreme Court and going to have to figure out how this is going. Paul Clement, how good is that guy?
6: He's absolutely fantastic. It's such a pleasure to work with one of the top uh, litigators in the country, uh, a guy who's argued 100 and I think 10 or 11 times now before the Supreme Court of the United States. When you see somebody who's really expert at their craft, it's just a pleasure to sit back and watch them perform. It's like, you know, I, I, I take my kids to learn how to watch, play baseball at the local rec league here, and, and it's, you know, fun to watch them learn how to play the game, oftentimes very frustrating at the same time to watch them. And it's almost like you walk off that field and right onto that perfectly manicured Major League Baseball field, and you see this guy step up to the bat with a perfectly smooth swing and stroke one to left field over the fence. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And I'm so glad that he and his team at Kirkland and Ellis were able to join with us on this case to represent Coach Kennedy to get the very best defense that he could possibly have had. Uh, we believe at First Liberty, you shouldn't have to pay an attorney to, to, uh, get your civil rights back when the government has taken them away unjustly. And so we don't charge our clients for the time that we represent them. And, and to his credit and his entire team's credit, neither did uh, Paul Clement. Uh, we did all this pro bono. And our hope is that uh, millions of Americans will go to FirstLiberty.org and make sure to pay that forward to the next guy who is like Coach Kennedy.
0: Well, thank you very much. appreciate all of your efforts. And you guys have been there on the big cases, and we appreciate what you do.
6: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Jeremy Rice, thanks so much. Appreciate you coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. And now listen to part of the oral argument in the U.S. Supreme Court this week uh, in the case of Coach Joe Kennedy. You'll hear the voices of several of the justices and also Paul Clement, who is an advocate for Joe Kennedy in court.
4: Enjoy. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 21-418, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Mr. Clement. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, when Coach Kennedy took a knee at midfield after games to say a brief prayer of thanks, his expression was entirely his own. That private religious expression was doubly protected by the free exercise and free speech clauses. When the school district fired him for that fleeting religious exercise out of endorsement concerns, it not only violated the First Amendment, but it ignored a veritable wall of this Court's precedents that make clear that a school does not endorse private religious speech just because it fails to censor it. As much as the district would like to change the subject, the record is clear that Coach Kennedy was fired for that midfield prayer, not for any earlier practices. And the record is equally clear that the district's sole reason for its actions was out of endorsement concerns, not concerns for band members' safety or how many players joined the coach in the prayer. In fact, Coach Kennedy was disciplined for events at two games in particular, October 23rd and October 26th. At the first of those games, it is undisputed that no one joined the coach in his prayer. Nonetheless, that solo prayer was Exhibit A in his firing. Exhibit B was the October 26th game, when no players joined him in the prayer. Yet, nonetheless, the district throughout this case, both contemporaneously and to the EEOC and in deposition, has confirmed that the sole driving force behind its actions has been avoiding endorsement. The Ninth Circuit held that the district's actions not only comply with the First Amendment, but are compelled by it. That decision is flatly inconsistent with this Court's precedence. The Ninth Circuit's government speech holding ignores this Court's statement in Garcetti to avoid overly broad job descriptions. And the Ninth Circuit's Establishment Clause holding fails to grasp a basic teaching of this Court's cases that has been said over and over again and is simple enough for even young students to understand that the government does not endorse all private religious speech just because it takes place on the school side of the gates. I welcome the court's questions.
2: Um, Mr. Clement, just so I'm clear, are you pursuing, uh, below you had a free exercise claim and you had a uh, free speech claim. Uh, Which are you pursuing? Are you pursuing both now or are you pursuing them separately or is this a sort of a hybrid claim argument you're making? So, Justice
4: Thomas, we are pursuing them both. They're both fully preserved in this court. But I do think you're right in the sense that this is a hybrid type case in which the free speech clause and the free exercise clause reinforce each other. And I think it directly enforces how, it reinforces how the court should approach the case. Because when a government acts not because it's trying to maintain discipline in the school or maintain order or avoid disruption, but it is taking action precisely because the speech is religious and the school fears endorsement concerns, that's a case where strict scrutiny applies, and it's not just a case for ordinary Pickering balancing.
2: So uh, where does Garcetti fit in? I and mean, uh, it seems as though that's uh, muddying the water a little bit, because uh, you would not normally think of a free exercise claim as being uh, amenable to Garcetti.
4: Well, I think that's a fair point, Justice Thomas. I guess if the, if the, if the statement really is the uh, government's own speech, then I don't think you'd have the basis for either a free speech claim or a free exercise claim. It may be, though, that in deciding whether or not the coach's speech is his own speech or the government's speech, you might apply a slightly different test in the free exercise context than you would in the free speech case. But either way, I think we are comfortably on the private side of the Garcetti inquiry.
2: Because the Garcetti inquiry asked whether this is part of the coach's job duties. Well, we know it's not a part of his job, uh, especially since the school district didn't know anything about it initially. And it objected to it, so it can't be a part of his job.
5: Well
4: that's music to my ears, Justice Thomas, and I would say even beyond that we know it's not part of his job duties for at least two other reasons. First of all, his job duty was not some all-encompassing responsibility for the players after the final whistle blew because the record is clear that he was able to have a private conversation, greet a spouse, and do things like that.
2: But how could you make a free exercise claim and say it's a part of his job?
4: We're not. So we're saying this isn't part of his job. Um, so it's private speech, and therefore under free speech principles, it's subject to, in our view, ultimately because the government's action is religiously based, it's subject to strict scrutiny. But we'd also say because it's not part of his job, it's private religious activity that's protected by the free exercise Mr.
3: Clement, um, I, I, I have been trying to parse this out in a similar way to Justice Thomas, but let me just give you... A certain number of hypotheticals. And tell me what's when it becomes private and when it's still public. A, a teacher begins each of her classes with a silent prayer and an audible prayer. Now when I say begin, bell rings, students are coming in, they sit down, teacher says the prayer privately or publicly. Is that within her duties as
4: a teacher? I would think so, Justice Sotomayor. Why? Because it's it's during instructional time. It's during a time where uh, she has instructional How about duties. before the bell rings? So, Students well, are
3: coming in. She's reading the Bible. She's reading it out loud. Before the bell. Is it the bell that makes it within the time or not within the time?
4: Well, I would say the bell is what makes your first hypothetical a relatively straightforward one. As to your second hypotheticals, because I think there's two things there. I think if the if the if the teacher were before the bell reading her Bible at her desk, either silently or barely audibly, that would be private speech. That would be protected. If before the bell, but while the students are all there, she's reading out loud to the class. Um, I think that's that's kind of the, the edge case because. So let's take
3: it to the end of the class. Class, the students are getting up. It is part of everyday life that as students leave, they stop and they talk to the teacher, she gives them some answers to their questions about the lesson. But instead of doing that, instead of waiting for those questions, she decides, I'm going to say a prayer. Is that within her duties to, to is that personal or is that still something that will be perceived as part of her work day?
4: So, Justice Sotomayor, I think that's closer to the edge case, and I think what it would, it would depend on, again, first of all, if after the bell rings, she's reading the, the Bible, um, because she's free to do whatever she wants, and she chooses to read the Bible, and she does it either silently. But she's or not the, free
3: to do everything she wants. She's required, as part of her duties, to be available to the students and answer their questions.
4: Well, th- then it might be a situation where, the, in, in that hypothetical, where she's essentially supposed to be cont- continuing to have some instructional obligations to the kids and she's not free to text her spouse, well, check then her email. Well, let's take that, okay? She's not free
3: um, to do that because it's personal. She could do it, but it's personal speech, not religious speech to text Um, her husband or to check the internet, could she be fired for texting her husband during school hours?
4: Well, I I, I think if I'm understanding the hypo right, if it's a neutral rule, doesn't single out religious expression. Uh,
3: No, no neutral rule. This is, if she does something that's private on office hours, this is her employer. Her employer says to her, don't do private things when you're working.
4: And she does it anyway. Can she be fired? So uh, that is a neutral rule, as you're explaining it to me. I think that's important uh, to my rule. answer, so I just want I, to make sure that's common ground. It's a neutral uh, rule that you can't do anything private.
3: But why does it have to be a neutral rule? Meaning, and, and this is why I'm getting to this example, she's on duty. She's on duty in the classroom. And the duty is not from the beginning of the bell to the end of the bell. The duty is while she's in the classroom. So why can't an employer tell an employee what they're permitted to do, personal or otherwise, during that time? And I ask this question because I'm analogizing it to this situation. I found it odd in your brief that you just kept saying the coach wasn't on the field during the game. But I have a dozen or more statements by your coach telling and admitting that his duties as coach didn't weren't just during the game. He had an obligation to remain behind for two hours after the game finished. That was part of his duties. He had a duty to make sure that he escorted all the players off the field. He had a duty to make sure the other team got off the field. He had a duty to do a post-game wrap-up, both with the players and the coach. He had a duty to clean up and to make sure that the gym was left in good order. So I guess what I'm asking is... If he had all these duties and your employer says to you, these are the duties that you have and that's all I want you to do, why can't it choose to say, and the one duty I don't want you to do is to do this one because you are an example to your players. You admit that that's part of your duties. If it's not part of his duties to set the example the school wants, why can't the school fire a coach who decides to put a Nazi swastika on their arm and go to the middle of the field and pray? If someone comes up and says, that's part of my religion, could the school say no to them?
4: So, Justice Sotomayor, I think there were maybe three different hypotheticals there, and I'm going to try to deal with them as best I can. Um, If somebody wants to have sort of a Nazi emblem, um, but it's not religious. Assume it's religious. uh, but, But if it's not religious. Assume it's religious. I'm happy to assume it's religious. If it's religious, that might be, if it's claimed to be religious, that might be one of the rare cases where you question the sincerity of the religious belief, because I'm not really aware of that religion myself. But assuming it's a sincere religious belief, there's no basis to discriminate on the basis of religion. And so the the, 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 the school might have to address that through a neutral policy avoiding disruption. And if it's a neutral policy and doesn't single it out because it's religious, then that's something that would be evaluated under Pickering.
5: Mr. Clements, yes, can I... Uh, Mr. Clement, what if the the activity uh, on the field did not consist of this kneeling down briefly, but something more uh, uh, extensive, standing up on the 50-yard line, arms outstretched, uh,
4: engaging in audible prayer? Is, Is your analysis and answer still the same? It's not exactly the same, Mr. Chief Justice. I think the, the, the difficulty with the sort of audible prayers or some of the practices that the coach candidly admitted he engaged in previously, where he's holding up the helmets for both teams and sort of talking to uh, the players, is there's an instructional component to that that I think that a, that a school district could say, that, that since you're engaged in instructional activity, and that's the core of what coaches and teachers do, we're going we're gonna to treat that as government speech. I think that... well, no, he's not... Um speaking to the players, as in the example you gave, but he's praying to God. So if, he's not, if there's not an instructional component to if the players are, are, are you know, doing their own thing in the end zone, for example, then I think it really becomes what the school is, is, is able to have a neutral rule, and this was part of my answer to what the, another component of Justice Sotomayor's question, which is the, the school has a fair amount of flexibility to determine what the duties of the coach are. Here, they did not say that his duties were an all-encompassing supervisory role. And I suppose if the school district had one coach whose whole job was to watch those kids after the bell like a hawk and make sure they didn't get into any trouble, even a brief religious exercise by that individual might be inconsistent with their neutral job duties and a basis for the school to do something. But here, Uh, It's it's in the record, and I think undisputed, that the the coach could do other things, other private things, of a comparable amount of time, because this is a fleeting religious exercise. Even the school district described it as fleeting.
2: But would tickering apply, Mr. Clement, if in the Chief Justice's hypothetical, let's say he says the Our Father with arms outstretched, and it starts causing a lot of havoc in the stands, a lot of the things that you know, your opponents, your friends on the other side say that happened, that you know, the band members were being rushed, the head coach feared for his life. If his prayer of the Our Father caused that kind of chaos, would Pickering apply? If they said, for reasons of efficiency and school safety, we just can't have this.
4: So if, if, if they came up with a neutral policy that tried to deal with that situation, I think you would test the neutral policy based on Pickering. Right, well, I think if they tried to adopt the neutral policy for the sole reason of stopping the our father, I think that 's a case where you 'd say no that 's pretextual, and that 's still going to be subject to strict scrutiny but, I, but, I, but if I just get it on the table, but I also think if, if what if the hypothetical is that kind of audible prayer. Um, you, you do have the, the argument, at least, that that would be uh, instructional and might be a different case. I'm sorry, just, Breyer?
5: Well, one of my problems in this case was the parties seemed to have different views of the facts. So I'd like to get the, this may be a case about facts and not really much about law. And that's why I wanted to try this. I'll list six facts that I got out of the record and just tell me if they're right or wrong. That's all. If you want to say they're wrong, I'll go back to it. If you want to say they're right, good, I don't have to go back to it. Right? Okay. One, for a long time, Kennedy would go after the game, Coach Kennedy would go to the 50-yard line, and he spoke out loud a prayer of thanksgiving, and he allowed students to join him. Two, when the district learned about that, it wrote to him or told him, You are free to engage in religious activity, including prayer, but it has to be physically separate from student activity, and it has to be non-demonstrative, okay? If they're involved, if the students are nearby. Three, his lawyers, Kennedy's lawyers, then sent him a letter that seemed less accommodating. It said, beginning on October 16th, Kennedy will continue his practice of saying audibly, just after the game, by himself, at the 50-yard line, an audible verbal prayer, and students could come. And Kennedy said, I'm not going to stop my prayer because kids are around me. Four. So am I supposed
4: to stop you when something's not quite yeah. right in my? Yeah, yeah just on? to make note that. I, I think it's important if you
5: look at the demand letter that was hmm. sent on October 14th... I'm about to do that. With, no no, that's what you were just talking about. No, no, right? I'm not. This is This is before I'm saying, oh, you're correct, you're right.
4: So in in that October 14th letter, it didn't say that we want to pray with students around. It specifically said that the coach shouldn't have to flee from Mm -hmm. students if they independently and voluntarily come near him because the students also have First Amendment
5: rights. Correct. But Kennedy in his letters said, I am not going to, in his deposition, I will not stop my prayer because there was kids around me. Yes, he okay. said it's joint appendix okay. page 295. I'm not going to stop exactly. my
4: prayer mid-prayer that I start by myself. All right, I'll
5: go back and read that. i check it because I'm going to go back and read it. Four, he then advertised his plan to pray at the 50-yard line at the October 16th game, and the media all found out about it, made a big deal about it, and he was surrounded by players and a large number of spectators who rushed to the field. Well, and and That's the, on October 16th. October 16th. Important
4: to note that the only players that joined him on October 16th were players from the opposing team.
5: Okay, it's opposing team. Got it. Five. Afterwards, the district said to Kennedy, well, "You cannot engage in demonstrative religious conduct while you are on duty for the district. Okay, but if it's not going to be perceived as district endorsement." endorsement will accommodate it for example pray privately or inside the school building or on the athletic facility somewhere or in the press box and you can do that before or after games and the development of accommodation is an ongoing process and we will discuss further accommodations and the final thing six is Kennedy never answered that letter okay You've so got the six. Have you taken six? the Mingas? There are a lot of them, and I'm sorry about that. But are they basically right with your exceptions? That you well,
4: and, and I was just about to add exception six, no. which is... Um, Seven. The, <laughs> well, no, no. But on, oh. on six, the, oh. the, the record's not in the record because these kind of interactions wouldn't necessarily be in the record. But there were efforts by Kennedy's lawyer to... Uh, negotiate with the school district and they would not respond and we pointed that out in a footnote in in a reply at the cert stage. So this is not a situation where there is some asymmetry here that, you know, they were wonderfully accommodating and uh, and, and we just refused to deal with them. Um, There are lots of other facts that are in the record. Um, that I think are highly relevant here, including that no student joined him on the field on October 23rd, even though that's one of two specific incidents for which he was disciplined, that no players joined him on the 26th, which is the other game where he was specifically uh, sort of signaled out for uh, his being fired. It's also, I think, important to recognize that after the game on the 16th, Uh, The letter was sent on the 23rd, didn't say anything about safety concerns, band member safety. It talked eight times about endorsement. And then at the next home game, the only other home game in the record here, the 23rd, because the school district made clear that there weren't supposed to be people on the field, they didn't have a replication of the events on the 16th. It's also true, and I think important.
1: uh, I want to finish your sentence, but.
4: Sure. I just had one more thing, which is that there were a number of these games uh, you know, contemporaneously right before then where the record is clear that he did engage in these kind of prayers when when the players were singing in the end zone, and many of them were at away games, and there was no rushing the field, no circus, no incident. Um,
1: I I, I take it from your earlier answers that you're not contesting the right of the school district to discipline uh, Coach Kennedy if he had been praying during the official,
4: if you will, post-game talk. I think that's right. We don't don't take an issue with that. So so that's like if
1: he were praying, uh, if he were a math teacher and he uh, uh, prayed in math class, same, if he's a coach and he prays during the post-game talk, uh, that the school can discipline him for. That's right, because it would be government speech. Just briefly,
4: why? Because it would be government speech.
1: Well, I don't really quite know why that's the, the uh, operative question. Um, uh, I mean, really, why? Why can the uh, school uh, discipline him? And I'm going to just sort of suggest and, and, and find out whether you agree that if you look at our prayer cases, the idea of why the school can discipline him is that that puts a kind of undue pressure A kind of coercion on students to participate in religious activities when they may not wish to, when their religion is different or when they have no religion. Is that correct? So, look, I I think it's simpler than that, quite frankly. You see, I think a lot of this Garcetti stuff is is, is just not getting to the heart of what we care about, what our cases have long cared about, in thinking about these questions, which is, coercion on students and having students feel that they have to join religious activities that they do not wish to join, that their parents do not wish them to join.
4: So I, I, I do think it's, it really is as simple as the government speech, but I also want to be clear, again, as we're talking about the record here, this is not a case where the government took action because of coercion concerns. The record is crystal clear that they were concerned about endorsement. Yeah,
1: I, had- I, I mean endorsement, coercion, I mean you're requiring a lot of a school board to try to figure out exactly which
4: box in the Establishment Clause to put this in. I, I, with all due respect, I don't think it's asking that much for a school district to understand what this court has said repeatedly and said that even young students Okay, assume
1: understand- that the school district had said the right things. They had said, we don't really like
4: this because
1: it is a form of pressure, a form of coercion. Um, uh, we're worried that the that, that students will feel, he gets to put me into a football game or not. He gets to, you know, give me an A in math class or not. And this is a kind of coercion that's improper for
4: 16-year-olds. So, Justice Kagan, in the hypothetical where the coach is giving the post-game talk, I think those kinds of concerns about real coercion may well be well placed. But when the coach is by himself at the midfield giving a 15-second fleeting prayer, those kinds, if you if you call that coercion, you are making an important category mistake. I, I see that point. So let me give you a hypothetical.
1: So the hypothetical is you have a coach, and he has historically been giving prayers in his post-game talk. And then the school says, don't do that. And let's say that the school uses the right words and says, don't do that because we think it poses a coercion problem. And he says, okay, I won't do that. And, uh, but instead, he says, um, you know what, I'm going to start the post-game talk a minute later than I usually do, and in the meantime, I'm going to pray and um, please, you know, join me uh, if, uh, uh, if, if, if you're so moved. But what's a student to think at that point?
4: I think in that hypothetical, there well may be a coercion concern. But if instead, the coach says, "All right, I'm going to go to midfield, I'm going to do this at 15 seconds, I'm going to try to pick a time when most of the players are in the end zone doing something else, and if anybody asks whether they can join, I'm going to tell them it's a free country. You don't have to, but do what you want. That's this case. And that's not coercion that counts under the so Establishment So is, is, is
1: that the question of this case, whether the facts are my facts
4: or your facts? That's one of the questions in this case. But why it matters, I, and, and honestly, I think the record's crystal clear on this. I mean, we have a record this time around. I don't think the joint appendix and the rest of the record is ambiguous on this point. But the reason the factual difference is important is because if you don't distinguish between the two situations, then you're leaving teachers and coaches in a position where there's no material room for their free exercise of religion or their free speech, and that's exactly what this Court said is not the case in Tinker. And so, and and again, the concerns, the reason it gets back to government speech, at least in my view, is because one technique that the Ninth Circuit used to approve this is one of these excessively broad job descriptions. And I think, with all due respect to Justice Sotomayor, her hypothetical built in this idea. If, If you say the job description of teachers and coaches is to be mentors, And if the mentors are religious, the students who depend on them for playing time and grades and all of the rest are going to want to curry favor and they're going to engage in their own religious practices or conform or at least feel pressure to do so. That's a recipe for no free speech rights at all.
0: Now, enjoy your week. Thanks for listening. And uh, next week, we've got on Julie Kelly, who's written a book about the January 6th, so-called insurrection. Uh, It would be the protest riots. And uh, we'll get you up to speed on what's going on in the John Durham investigation in Trump, Russia, Russia, Russia. Fascinating stuff. I like listening to stuff like this, so I'm hoping you do, too, especially since it has a little bit of a sense of humor. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, Mischief Managed.